So the first reading. The right of appeal found in concept five reminds us that we need to listen with consideration to everyone and encourage those with differing opinions, minorities, to state their views. Inviting those in the minority to speak out and listening to them with full hearts and consideration helps us maintain unity when we hear, understand, value and incorporate minority opinions into our decision-making process, we may avoid mistakes that, that can occur when we are angry, hasty, misinformed or rigid. Practicing consideration compels a thorough debate, keeps us all focused on the issue at hand and validates the worth and dignity of each member. Uh, and the second reading, uh, these are both from Paths to Recovery. In addition to the right of appeal, we want to be sure that those who serve us, whether paid employees or volunteers, can feel safe from any unjust use of power. Our right of petition permits anyone to petition uh, to be heard in a personal grievance and to carry the complaint all the way to the Board of Trustees without prejudice or fear of reprisal. The right of petition may include writing a report or letter and submitting it to an area assembly, the policy committee, concept 11, or to the World Service Conference. The existence of the right of petition, even if it is not often used, restrains the abuse of authority. While we recognise the need for directions and discipline in doing our various jobs, abuse of power and control is unacceptable and no one ever needs silently endure it. I'm going to pop those readings into the chat. First one and the second one coming through now. So, uh, there are three aspects to concept five in Alan. There's the minority opinion, which is the appeal, the personal personal grievance, which is the petition, right of petition, and then the third legacy procedure, which is which I'll come to last. Um, and the idea that I understand, and this is from concept 12, is that if a group is making a decision, um, what you're aiming for is substantial unanimity. And to get that, if there is a minority, um, they, you want to hear them so that you can bring their considerations into the decision. And make adjustments and compromises where necessary so as many people are as happy as possible. Uh, you can force through decisions with two thirds, but even a one third minority is quite a substantial, that's, that's quite a minority, one third of the people in the room, whose views are not there in the decision being made. Um, and this is all very nice. So you make a decision and you ask for a minority opinion and then you maybe adjust the proposal, uh, you mitigate the decision in a couple of ways. But there are some, my experience, some real dangers uh, with this. Um, lots of groups have very, very protracted business meetings and group conscience meetings. And the subject matter is very thin. It's little details here and there. And one of the things about the concept is it's not just doing things right, it's doing things efficiently. And when the concepts were originally written, the original author of Bill W talked about those two things, 
uh, if something is super, 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 super effective, it's going to be very inefficient. And something which is super efficient is going to be ineffective. And so there's a split in all the way through the concepts between decision making and implementation. And when I've seen groups get bogged down, and generally, almost every group I've ever been in errs on the side of getting bogged down in pointless detail and wrangling and flights and gripes and arguments and grievances. It's very rare that things are run with excessive simplicity. It's almost impossible to, to run things with excessive simplicity, actually. You've got to work very, very hard to do that, to err on that side. And what, what almost invariably happens is rather than having two layers of decision making, so there's the, there's the large decisions um, of general policy and finance, that's supposed to be what's reserved for the group conscience, where everyone gets to have a voice. So, so conferences held once a year um, in Alan and other, other fellowships too. It's held once a year to make really, really major decisions. And then in between, the work is carried out, which involves thousands of small decisions. But you don't take each small decision back to conference. You only cover major things. And I think groups which are well run are run in the same way. You do have a group conscience to discuss major questions of general policy and finance. But then the actual micro decision making, for instance, on the script, very common for group conscience meetings to discuss the script. Now, it's the up to the offices. That it's not a major decision of policy and finance. It's a detail of implementation, the exact wording of particular lines. Um, uh, and so you have trusted servants to whom that's delegated. And if you've got that distinction between policy making and um, detailed implementation, then you can have effectiveness and efficiency. Um, what works is having a minority opinion on, um, on the major matters, but then in between, rather than having everyone micromanaging the offices of the group, you let them get on with it. And then at the next group conscience meeting, if something really is burning a hole in someone's pocket, metaphorically for a year, then bring it up at the annual group conscience. So this is important enough to have a major policy decision. You know, this line in the script I find offensive, but give it a year. Let's see if it, it see if you can learn to live with it first. Um, so what happens in most groups? People are so frightened that someone is going to have a feeling that everyone's feelings on everything have to be heard just in case someone does it, and then they'll never come back. If they don't like something, they have their voices and been heard, they'll never come back to recover bullshit. Um, people are much more likely not to come back because they get sick of all the wrangling over minor details, far more damaging, frankly. Um, <laughs> so the minority opinion is terribly important, but if it goes too far, then the content of group discussions is dictated by the angriest people in the room. So the people with all the plights, the gripes, the grievances, the people who are constantly offended by everything, they're the ones who are setting the agenda. They're the ones who 
we don't stop discussing until, you know, Bobby's piped down. So once Bobby's happy, we can all go home. That's the tail wagging the dog. So it, and in Bill's essays on the concepts, it's very good. He talks about avoiding the tyranny of the majority over the minority. And that's fairly straightforward, but also avoiding the tyranny of an angry minority that won't go home until it's forced its opinion on the majority. And often the majority will cave because people just want to go home. So the angriest people get their way and that doesn't work either. So you hear the minority opinion, if anyone wants to re except if anyone wants to change their vote, you have a revote. And if they don't, if you've got two thirds, you've got two thirds, you're done, you go home. You really do not have to continue forever until uh, until everyone on the Um The other thing I've seen as well with the, um, minority opinion. I've seen at a conference where there is a minority opinion uh, right at the 11th hour and there isn't time to process it and it spooks everyone and people get suddenly frightened. I've seen very big decisions which have been very carefully made torpedoed by someone with, a, with a, a, an, a, an emotional plea at the 11th hour. And the whole, the whole, the work of the year is just gone immediately because people are too spooked to go ahead with their original view. So it, it can be, I think there's a psychological aspect to this. One, one's got to be careful how one then responds to the minority. So just because one has been expressed doesn't mean it's necessarily to be acted on. One's got to think about it very carefully, particularly if a lot of work has gone into something with lots and lots of people being consulted. How much weight does a, something announced at the eleventh hour really have? If no one else knows, if no one else noticed it, is it real? Um, uh, on on the personal grievance thing, I I, <laughs> I have to say I I, th I think it's very good in that reading that that the fact that one can bring one is enough to stop people abusing authority um, generally. But uh, it's very rare, I find it very rare, I've only seen a very few uh, occasions. Um, and in fact, all of the occasions, this is very interesting to me, and maybe not to you, but it'd be interesting to me, so I'll enjoy myself with this. Um, every single case of a grievance being brought, it's where someone wasn't doing their service and the group decided to elect someone else to the post. And then the person brings a grievance for being ill-treated. Um, one, one of them is extraordinary. It was an intergroup many years ago. Someone wanted a post and they were to turn up at the intergroup meeting for the vote. And someone else was going for the post as well. And at uh, 30 seconds after the meeting started, the person texted the chair to say they weren't going to be able to attend. It was someone who lived an hour away, so they would have known an hour before the meeting. They wouldn't suddenly know 30 seconds after it started that they can't get to the meeting from the other side of London. They knew an hour, but they waited until the meeting had started. They texted they wouldn't be there, and could the vote be held another time, but the meeting had already started. 
the person didn't see the text till after the meeting, but even then it was during the meeting it was even sent. So they elected someone else. The group elected, the intergroup elected someone else to that post and this grievance was brought. And what, what was so interesting, um, of course it's anyone's prerogative to bring a grievance, but the, the real danger is that it automatically converts into a kangaroo court against the person that made the decision without the officers exercising their discretion. And at this point, in this particular case, I think the wisest thing to have done would have been for the officers to say, right, is this a legitimate grievance or is this sour grapes or vexatious? And um, in the circumstances, someone that doesn't show up to the meeting they said they were going to show up to, by virtue of that, by virtue of failing to notify in advance or even an hour before. So, OK, if there's an emergency, fine, those can happen. But this clearly disqualifies someone from being able to do the service if they're unable to even turn up for their own election. It, this is the, there isn't really a case to answer here, but it went to a it went to a real kangaroo court and caused so much disunity. And the person who brought the grievance did not show up for the hearing. But the person who made the decision was pilloried for making the decision. And it was a very, very unfair situation. And it caused a kerfuffle between different people in the group, which took which some of which has not been resolved to date. There are some grievances which arose out of that. So it's very important that that's in place, but it's also got to be handled very carefully. There's nothing more disunifying in a group than, than some sort of hearing. I, and the two types are either a hearing to resolve uh, a grievance against an officer without it being tackled. There are ways of tackling it. There are ways of addressing it without going escalating straight to a hearing. You can discuss things with the person. You can offer an Would you like to do a different form of service? If you would, maybe you can cut. There are two other options. Or maybe you can shadow the person for a year. Maybe you can be on their team. There are ways of addressing the grievance without immediately going to the hearing. And the other thing, sometimes people get the hump. I'll finish shortly, don't worry. Uh, sometimes people get the hump in a meeting um, with someone else and they decide that this is a group matter and we're going, we, oh, is, we're going to have a, we're going to have, bring it to the attention of the officers. And it's essentially, it's a personal matter between two of the people. It's got nothing to do with group. But with every one of those, I've seen officers quite rightly say, no, this is not a group matter. This is between you and that person. If you want Sally to stop doing whatever she's doing, why don't you say, hey, Sally, please stop doing da 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 Because the group is not in charge of that. It's in charge of having a policy for harassment, um, uh, uh, sexually predatory behavior and threats of and acts of violence that's it that but those are general policies and those are exceptionally rare almost all of the uh jip between people is a much lower level and is essentially is of a, a, a personal nature so the group doesn't rule the individuals um the grievance procedure is there where a group officer hasn't discharged their duty in an appropriate way. So they're accountable to the group. 
that's why the group has authority over what the officer is doing. It's not a general sort of grievance procedure. I'm upset the group has to sort it out. And by the way, there's an interesting thing. I, I really will finish on this uh, famous last word. Um, sometimes people don't like what a group is doing. So they think they can appeal to the intergroup because they don't like the, you know, the, this group's format or the fact that there's no newcomers time or you're not allowed to say things in the chat or whatever, whatever it is. And they think that the intergroup is in charge of the group. And of course, it's not. The intergroup serves the group. The group is in charge of the intergroup. There is no higher authority than the group conscience. So if you go to the group conscience and you don't like the answer, hard luck, start your own group. There is no higher authority to appeal to, which is very, very, and I didn't, I was someone that did not like it when people said no to me. I've got a history of responding very badly to no. And part of recovery is learning to hear a no and act on it. Not to block it out, but to acknowledge it mentally and then act on it. And on the other side, to learn to say no when it's appropriate and not to relent to not to not to, to um, yes, relent in the face of any form of psychological onslaught. It's OK for the group to say no to things if it's appropriate to say no. So these are these are. Very important safeguards, I think, but they've got to be handled with handled with caution. So that's enough mercifully for me. I'm going to turn the recording off now.